like scary movies? Uh-huh. I'm getting ready to watch a video. You're making popcorn? Uh-huh. What's, what's, what's your favorite? Uh, I don't know. You have to have a favorite. Talk to me. Talk, talk to me. Hi everybody, I'm George and welcome to another episode of The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest at least. And you might have seen our guest on Good Mythical Morning, he's the creator of the podcast Bubble and the co-author of its Eisner-nominated adaptation, plus the Jordan half of Jordan Jesse Go. Please welcome the very funny Jordan Morris. Hi, great to be here. Yes, very excited to have you, big fan of your work. But why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with horror? Sure. Yeah. So I grew up in, you know, the 80s and 90s and was going to high school, you know, around 95, 96. And up until then, I was just a horror baby. Hated it. We, we, you know, never put it on around the house growing up. Whenever like something was on at a sleepover, I would, you know, ask to leave. I would hide. I would, you know, try and distract people into doing (laughs) something else. Like, you know, I really distinctly remember being at a sleepover and uh, someone putting on poltergeist and poltergeist just scaring the tar out of me. (laughs) And, and, you know, looking back, that is a pretty cheesy movie. (laughs) But, you know, if you've never seen a horror movie before, it, uh, it is absolutely terrifying. I was so scared of getting it sucked into the TV every time the TV was turned to static. <laughs> Trees bothered me. Clowns <laughs> bothered me after that. Yeah, a lot of a lot of spooky weirdness in that movie that, in hindsight, is actually kind of cheesy and funny. <laughs> it, le- it leaves a mark, for sure, especially it if did. you're in the, in the right age bracket for it. Like Totally. It's, it's so perfectly targeted for children <laughs> to be yeah. terrified of. <laughs> Yeah, it is almost like it's like, what would scare a kid? Yeah. <laughs> and let's put it all in this movie. Right, especially because they're not usually, I feel like, the ones who are actually in peril. It's usually like the parents or whatever. And so yeah. for uh, for the kids to be like, uh-oh, it's the parents working to save this kid who got sucked into right. the TV. Like, that could be me. And the fact that you don't really know what's going on mm-hmm. with her while she's in the TV. Oh, yeah. And I don't think you ever really find out. I don't know. I mean, there's sequels and stuff. I don't, right. you know, I don't know if you ever see the ghost dimension or whatever. <laughs> I don't, believe, I don't think sequels. so. Not in the ones I've seen. <laughs> um, but yeah, but definitely that that kind of unknown is yeah. is really terrifying. But um, but yeah, but in the 90s, uh, my if if my memory serves, like horror was 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 pretty niche. It was a like, you know, th- it was a kind of a direct, more of a direct-to-video thing or a thing that only, like, you know, hardcore nerds were into. But then Scream happened. And then it was all over movie theaters all the time. And just because going to the movies was such a big social thing for my friend group, I just, like, had to nut up. I just had to, like, <laughs> learn to watch horror or else I wouldn't be invited to anything. Yeah, so I just, like, kind of, like, white-knuckled my way through Scream and, you know, like, Urban Legends and Jawbreaker and then, like, Event Horizon and all those other kind of, you know, 90s throwbacky kind of movies. Yeah. And, yeah, and then just, like, grew to love it. I, I had a had a good buddy, Ryan Christian, who kind of, like, organized all the, all the like, trips out to 
you know, to theaters to see these things. And he had a big horror collection. And I remember like him sitting me down and just showing me, okay, here's, here's the thing here. It's based on a, you know, old black and white sci-fi movie. Here's Friday the 13th. You probably know Jason. He doesn't get the hockey mask till the third one. His mom's the killers in the first one, you know, and, and just kind of like giving me a real crash course in horror history. And yeah, since, since then I've not only, you know, it's not, not just something I, you know, can watch, you know, without peeing my pants. But uh, it's something I really, really enjoy. And like getting to write a little bit of horror has been has been a ton of fun. Yeah, I can definitely relate. I was also a, a coward for much of my life, uh, <laughs> right? Up, up, yes, up through high school for me. Mm-hmm, uh, it wasn't yeah. until college that I became this a, is a safe fan. space to admit <laughs> <laughs> to admit your your former life as a coward. That's right. That's right. I'm curious if you have a favorite subgenre, something that is more likely to be like a hit for you. But then also, I'm wondering if there was one that like was an easier way in for you when you were just dipping your toes into horror? And if that's yeah. changed now that you're like, oh, I'm into horror in general, uh, I am I can handle the body horror instead of just slashers right. and stuff. I will say that the, the genre that gets me the most is Haunted House. It might just stem back to Poltergeist being such a big you know, moment in my brain, but Hereditary fucked me up. The trailers for Skinamarink fucked me up. <laughs> I don't think I will ever see that movie. <laughs> so yeah, so that type of thing that like, there's something in the house. Here's a shot of a long hallway. <laughs> Those types of things really, really get me. Like Barbarian really got me. I know that's not like a haunted house, but that's a like, there's something in the house. Yeah, right. What's um, wrong here? The, right, exactly. So that type of stuff really gets me. But a good... A good, like, entry point to horror, for me at least, and I think it relates to today's movie, is, like, the action horror. The, like, taking familiar horror trope, and here it's vampires, like, zombies with the Resident Evil movies, and just applying it to, like, kind of cheesy action. Like, I love cheese, and mm-hmm. definitely, like, around, you know, the time I was starting to get into horror, like... I loved Van Damme movies. I loved Schwarzenegger movies. You know, your your commandos like Tango and Cash. And since I loved that stuff, like Big Trouble in Little China was a great like kind of bridge movie, you know, because there is some horror in that, but it's also kind of a cheesy, quippy action movie. And and yeah, I I just love it when they when they kind of combine those things. And it's not something you see too much of these days. It's a little bit out of fashion. But yeah, every time you can combine a little action cheese with a little horror cheese, I'm just there. Oh, I'm totally with you. Totally with you. I did want to talk to you a little bit about comics as well, because sure. you've got not o- not only one, but two exciting sounding works coming out. No, thanks. Uh, first off, Youth Group, which uh, seems to be a little hush-hush still, but a horror comedy with that no, name. No, happy to talk about it. It's a little far out, but yes, I'm ha- I'm really excited about Youth Group. That is a graphic novel I just uh, did the my final proofread of recently, so nice. happy to talk about that. It's a very uh, evocative name, certainly, for uh, <laughs> for people who religion has both positive and negative connotations, especially right. within the horror space. You know, there are a lot of religious-themed horror uh, movies that have become such huge behemoths in, like, the iconography of horror. Totally. That sort of shifting that towards, like, uh, the already unease of, like, being in a, like a, a teenager or whatever in a youth group. So I definitely want to hear more about that. 
So Youth Group is a graphic novel coming out, I think, next year that I wrote and is illustrated by a great artist named Bowen McGurdy, who has a great kind of YA horror series called Spectre Inspectors that is out now and people should really check out. And yeah, it is. I so I grew up in 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 a uh, in in a, like a hip youth group where a guy with you know tattoo sleeves would turn a chair backwards and <laughs> tell you about a cool guy named JC that was actually a pretty great rapper himself. <laughs> you know, so that that whole thing I think was something I haven't seen depicted in media. Well, I don't think. Right. So it's something I've always kind of wanted to write about because it's such a funny, weird little world. And yeah, I kind of like got the idea when I saw a news story about exorcisms being on the rise, like exorcisms, I guess, in, you know, 2023, uh, or, you know, whenever I was reading this article, 2019 or 2020, Mm -hmm. were like, up so like mm. people are still doing exorcisms to this day you know uh, i'm sure you know people with like you know people who maybe need <laughs> you know mental health treatment sure. are getting exorcisms instead right so i kind of thought about you know the goofy youth group kids that i grew up with and just like thinking about them doing exorcisms was really funny to me yeah so yeah that was kind of the starting point of the idea and you know my my editor callista brill over at first second uh, who i did the bubble graphic novel with she had the great idea to set it in the 90s because it is such a kind of a personal thing for me. So we we decided to kind of set the story in the 90s in Orange County, California, where I grew up. And yeah, and I got to I got to really dump a lot of my like personal experience into this. It's a it's a really it's a really fun book. It is for a YA audience, but I think that uh, the the horror gets across. Bowen is great with like suspense and creepy angles and she draws a great monster so yeah so i i hope it is it is both funny and horrific maybe a little heartwarming in the end so yeah i'm excited about youth group and and uh and hope people check it out when when the time comes yeah that sounds really cool that exorcism angle sounds really really fascinating and uh i actually didn't know that they were on the rise so that's very creepy that uh that that people are still uh, still making that work for them but the other story that you're you're working on, uh, you contributed the story Soylent Teen to Pop's Chocolate Shop of Horror, part of the Archie Horror line, which I'm already a fan of from the excellent Archie versus Predator. There it is. <laughs> yes. Holding up the trade on Cam. That's right. Yeah. If uh, that so so something kind of cool about the world of Archie comics that maybe you you don't know if you're not a big comic shop person or if you just you know are a Riverdale fan is that Archie Comics has this great horror line where they put those characters Archie Jughead Betty Veronica into these like kind of insane horror scenarios. I mean, you have the one where they fight the predator. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's it's just kind of fun to to that they want to play with those characters in that way. And they have all these great one shots that come out where it's just kind of a different setting or a different theme or a different vibe. Recently, they had a great Final Girls issue where, you know, Betty is a Final Girl in kind of a slasher situation. And yeah, and so so the one I was asked to contribute to was Pop's Chocolate Shop of Horrors. It's uh, three spooky stories set in their diner. And yeah, it was really fun. They they really they they really let us go wild. I, I did my story with a great artist named Liana Congas, who I think uh, comics fans will recognize. And yeah, they were just tons of fun to work with. And, and the Archie folks 
really kind of just <laughs> let us do some fucked up things to their <laughs> beloved characters, which I really appreciated. And we still tried to make it really funny, too. We wanted to bring the horror and the jokes because, like, you know, Archie is first and foremost about gags and jokes. So oh, we yeah. wanted we wanted to have both. Yeah, I mean, that is part of what I love about the line as well, is that they really do seem to let people kind of go off the rails with it in that... I remember when, like, the DC universe crossed over with Mortal Kombat, and right. they toned, they like took out the fatalities because they were like, "You can't be killing the DC characters." <laughs> yes, we don't want to see <laughs> Superman's head get ripped off <laughs> by Sub Zero. Exactly, and then you know, so you expect that going into something like Archie versus Predator, and then in the first dozen pages, there's literally people getting their heads and spinal cords ripped out, like. The full Predator, they're yeah. really in the world of Predator, which is something that I really appreciate, that they're not just there in name only. Yeah, no, it is really cool, and it's nice that they they kind of play fast and loose with the continuity. I think they do have some stuff that kind of carries over, and there's, you know, continuations from some other stories occasionally, but for the most part, I think they just want to, like, a fun creepy funny story and you know if <laughs> a beloved main character gets their head chopped <laughs> off not a big deal they can come back in the next issue That's exactly it them's the breaks as they say them's the break <laughs> uh well we're gonna keep talking about comics but shift from stoked to staked because the movie we're talking about today is blade from 1998 a stone cold classic and the first successful modern marvel movie this is, as I said off air, a movie that I personally love. Me too. You already discussed your passion for these action horrors. And I also really think that this is so successful at both. It, yeah. It's a, it is so beautifully choreographed and such a perfect action movie, but the horror elements that are in it are real. It's again, not just like a, a, a gesture at it. There are people bleeding all over the place and and getting <laughs> legitimately injured. Right. It, it's just such a, a triumph of both for me. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And it is a little more of an action movie than it is a horror movie, but they like... They're pretty serious about their vampire lore. They've created a cool kind of unique vampire lore specifically for the movie. Yeah, and they, they really like take both parts of it seriously, but it is also like a very funny, quippy action movie in its own way, too. So, yeah, it is just this, this soup that really works. Right. Yeah, in, in a way that I don't think another franchise has been able to mimic since. Right. Something I want to get your opinion on, the duo that created Blade and Deacon Frost in 1973 for the Tomb of Dracula are Gene Colon and Marv Wolfman. Yeah, yeah. This guy's not even trying to cover up that he's a damn werewolf making anti-vampire propaganda right. here. Uh, <laughs> yes, it's a, a slander, a slanderous, <laughs> a slanderous tirade from a biased source. <laughs> you no, know, Marv Wolfman is a legendary comics guy. Went on to like create the Teen Titans. Yeah, yeah, and this was, and I have not read the 70s comics that introduced Blade. I think it might even be one issue. Marvel had this series called Tomb of Dracula that I have read a little bit of, and it's just kind of there, like, I think Dracula was in the public domain by that point, and they're just like, we can do it! Like, nothing's stopping us, we can just do a Dracula comic, and no one can stop us. And I think there was, they did also have a Frankenstein thing, where they kind of, like, retold Frankenstein in comics, but then it went off into some weird directions. So yeah, this is this is part of this, just that, you know, kind of 70s comic. I think Blade was a vampire hunter in one issue. I don't exactly know where Deacon Frost came in. Same issue. 
Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so they they just kind of took that and spin it off into a a whole trilogy. And I think Blade has been back in Marvel Comics since, and he's definitely popped up in like the video games and stuff like that. But yeah, I think he was just kind of this obscure one-off who, you know, I'm sure it was relatively easy to make a movie about because, you know, you're not that protective of someone who's not Spider-Man or the X-Men. So yeah, I think they just, it seems like they just had a lot of freedom to go kind of nuts. And I think that's, that's part of what makes the movie so fun. Yeah, uh, Marvel was bankrupt in the mid-90s, and so they had been, you know, selling off rights left and right, pretty much. And so New Line Cinemas had the rights to a bunch of their movies, including Blade. And it is kind of interesting that Blade was the first successful Marvel movie, considering, like you say, and also similar to Iron Man kicking off the MCU, Blade was a comparatively obscure character. He was in print through the 80s, but only very spottily. So it was like the 70s and then, yeah, back in the 90s. But then they also had several in the works before Blade, including Fantastic Four and The Incredible Hulk, but they just couldn't get the scripts right, basically. And so it was only through sheer happenstance that Blade's script got there quicker and uh, and became the first one to uh, find this success. Uh, New Line is the producer and distributor. I always have a little bit of res- a little bit extra respect for New Line, who not only did a lot of my favorites like Lord of the Rings and Extro, but also helped legitimate outsider art like Pink Flamingos and Texas Chainsaw Massacre find a foothold on college campuses as a distributor. And so it's kind of fascinating to me that they start out, you know, creating all like or and, and distributing all this great outsider art, and then becoming this juggernaut of of like what movie adaptations of comics can be like david goyer is the writer of this yeah and i mean not even escaping new line david s goyer has had an insane amount of influence on mainstream comic book adaptations the blade series ghost rider spirit of vengeance several dc movies and shows like batman begins and sandman it's kind of remarkable to be honest what what an impact he's had yeah i know Uh, he directed the third one too i think right yeah he did maybe i I don't think anyone was saying that the third blade movie is the high point of the franchise (laughs) maybe some would maybe there are some blade three stands out there blade trinity i think i'm sure yeah um, the Ryan Reynolds heads are all yeah. clamoring. <laughs> right, yeah, one of, of Ryan Reynolds' first of many comic book roles that he would go right. on to play. Um, yeah, it, it's it's so neat. It's something it, something that's interesting about it that I that I only that only occurred to me on on my rewatch for this. This is in '98. The Matrix is in '99. This is before Matrix. Oh yeah, and it has that aesthetic that you just associate with Matrix. A lot of leather like hong kong style wire fighting the industrial Um, soundtrack yeah a lot of techno it's like oh this you know and i always kind of in my head i did a little retcon where i'm like oh matrix came out and then every movie had this aesthetic for 10 years no blade was first blade got to this first and you know (laughs) this this aesthetic hasn't aged perfectly it's still a little cheesy it really reminds you of the 90s but like kind of wild that this movie not only like kind of predicted comic book movies but but beat beat the matrix to this look and vibe it's 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 wild it really is yeah they're kind of pulling from the similar sort of sci-fi areas that that create that dark aesthetic it's really cool david s goyer also worked on dark city which also kind of pulls a a similar aesthetic so he's 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 right in there he's definitely into it 
And the idea was to come up for a script for under $10 million that would be tough and street like the movie Juice was the okay. quote. But by the time Goyer finished writing, it was an extremely expensive, genre-busting, kung-fu vampire comic book movie <laughs> that was postmodern in its attempt to demystify vampires taking them seriously as a ground-level threat instead of the gothic doomed romance, like Interview with a Vampire, he said. You know, it, it's interesting how you talk about this as a, like, departure for vampires. There's a, the, and I think, an unintentionally funny moment in this movie where Blade is explaining to, and I forget this character's name, but she's the she's the doctor who who kind of accompanies him. and is, Karen, is yes. Our, Karen, yeah, our kind of intro to the world. And he's like, forget everything you've seen in the movies about vampires. <laughs> And then proceeds to explain the things that kill vampires that you know from movies. Mm -hmm, And I'm mm -hmm. like, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's that groundbreaking. I feel like the only thing they add to the mythos is like silver hurts them, which I think we know is a vampire or a werewolf thing. Right. Crosses don't do shit. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe it's just crosses don't do anything, but that's kind of it right like everything like sunlight kills them garlic mm. kills them steaks mm. kill them i'm like well that's what i know from movies yeah <laughs> so i shouldn't forget everything i should forget so one i shouldn't forget everything yeah so one thing but also <laughs> the other things he should have sort of said oh the cross thing isn't real everything else that's real everything you know from movies do that it's actually a really good resource <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah oh yeah watch all the vampire movies you can it's all pretty much true that would be kind of a funny <laughs> funnier version of that scene that but it is kind of, you know, it is, it is, I understand how, like, they're planting their flag saying, yeah. like, you know, this ain't, this ain't your grandpa's Bella Lugosi. Exactly, exactly. Thing, so. The studio did keep trying to interfere. They were gun shy after Howard the Duck was a flop, which did precede this movie. Yeah. They said things like, can this be a spoof? And can Blade be white? To <laughs> which oh, Goyer, boy. <laughs> Goyer, this is a quote from him. He said, absolutely fucking not. Like, that is just terrible. You cannot do that. And he's right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, I, I am I am a, a dumb white guy and, and not, not smart enough to talk about the, the issues surrounding this. But it does seem from, from my perspective that this is a pretty good, like, they do, they do have a lot of moments where, like, Blaze, Blade's race is important. Like, mm-hmm. it does, you know, it is part of the narrative. It's part of the character. And yeah, definitely, definitely cool that that you know in the '90s when people weren't as concerned about diversity that yeah this movie with a you know uh, you know mostly black leads got to get made and you know be such a cool success yeah uh, so so for my I don't know a lot about this perspective pretty cool and so the head of New Line at the time Mike DeLuca said I'll make it for forty million if you can get Denzel Washington. 35 if you can get Wesley Snipes, and 20 wow. if you can get Lawrence Fishburne. And so Goyer said, perfect, because I'm all in on Wesley anyway. And I think that he was exactly right, because – so Wesley was already interested in making a Marvel movie, although he was interested in Black Panther, and that wasn't moving forward. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And so for him to then shift over to this movie, I think that he brings the exact right – knowing but not ironic gravitas to it he's great he's he's perfect i mean like he is such a staple of like 90s action and like doing doing that but giving it a little comic book and a little horror like just you know him tweaking that performance so slightly Mm -hmm. uh he's so good all the one-liners get me he's so physical i mean in all in all of his movies he does such a great job of like seeming like he's doing the fighting and you know 
uh, yeah, it always it always impresses me. Like Demolition Man is a weird favorite movie of mine. I cannot explain why I like that movie. <laughs> I just do. But yeah, he's he's so great in that just because he he gets that weirdo tone that they're going for. And yeah, he's 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 so good in movies like this. Yeah, and you know, you see his comedy chops in movies like White Man Can't Jump, but they're still yeah. on display here. You need to be able to have that perfect timing for those one-liners. And yeah, I mean, he has a ton of them in here and they land every single time. Yeah, it's it's great. Like it's a little bit camp, but also he is fucking cool as hell he is so fucking cool in this Um, (laughs) it's an amazing entrance and like the movie pays it off like him going into the blood rave and like wrecking shop and as soon as he walks in everyone's afraid of him it's the the day walker walker. (laughs) it's the day walker and like the fact that he is able to deliver on that amazing entrance is just it it, it's so cool this this movie never stops being cool Mm -hmm. and like yeah, I mean, I mean, he's he's, you know, basically the reason for that. I think there's some other great performances in this, but like it rides his on his shoulders just, for sure. Yeah, his is just just top notch. He actually wasn't familiar with Blade going in, and so he basically decided to take this as a tribute to black exploitation era, like Superfly and Shaft style martial arts and leather suits. Also, movies I love, which probably helps to play a role in my love of this movie as well, and. A big part of what I love about this movie is that it's the perfect level of ensemble to still allow a diversity of character, but also small enough to actually learn about each of them and spend time with them. I do like Blade 2 a lot, but my biggest complaint about it and what gives this movie the edge for me is that there are too many characters, and that means we don't get to spend enough time with Blade. Yeah, I, I do love the supporting performances in this. Like... Chris Christopherson is so good. So grizzled, listening to... Oh, God, what is he listening to Bad Moon Rising? Yes, when we Credence, first, of course. We there get you him. go. You gotta love it. You gotta... Yeah, he, he's great in this, and just kind of like, you know, doing his old Western thing. Like, doing, you know, he is the... He's the, you know, the grizzled cowboy in this. Right. The aging gunslinger, handing it down. It, of course, just making this more of a genre mashup than it... <laughs> You know, than it is is already. Yeah, he's awesome. I when I was watching this, I'm like, young Whistler movie. Do that. Do young Whistler movie and teenage blade. Wow. And that do a do a do a kind of a last of us thing. Like it's Blade's first rodeo. Whistler's teaching him the ropes. He's still kind of feral, like they talked about. Yeah, yeah. And God, that's just something I love about this movie is that it's not an origin. It you just get dropped in and it's just like Blade's Blade's the coolest guy around. He's been the coolest guy around forever. I know this is the first time you've seen him, but Blade has been out there fucking wrecking shop for years, and he rules. That's right. That's um, exactly what that entrance does. We're all as soon as totally. they're all like Daywalker, we're like, oh shit, it's the Daywalker. <laughs> I know, and I don't, I don't know why more comic book movies don't learn from this. Of like, you know. We've seen Uncle Ben die a lot. We've yeah. seen Thomas and Martha Wayne die a lot. These are these are cold takes. The pearls. You got to drop the pearls. The pearls. Yes. Oh, the <laughs> pearls. Oh, <laughs> we just saw Zorro. What do we do? Let's go through Crime Alley. We've seen it. And like, and this movie does such a great job. Like, it seems like a sequel. It just seems like Blade 5 or something. Yeah. And I know I just kind of sort of pitched doing the origin <laughs> story, but I think that's part of what makes this movie so cool. Is it's just like... Here's the world. It's been here forever. Welcome to it. Hell yeah. So our, our main guy, Blade, is going up against Deacon Frost, played with aplomb by Stephen Dorff. 
Mm-hmm. He is so perfectly smarmy and seething here. He's great. Goyer described him as a character from a Brett Easton Ellis novel and said, everything about his performance goes counter to everything you've seen in a vampire movie before. There is nothing Baroque about him or elegant or Shakespearean. He's crass and visceral and all about hunger. He looks like a guy who spent the last few nights drinking and hasn't showered nor combed his hairs and doesn't give a shit. He's completely 180 degrees from Blade, who has this quiet, dignified presence, and they work as opposites to each other. And that's exactly it. I think that because Blade is glowering and quiet and reserved, you need to have someone on the other end who is bombastic in a way that Dorf is bringing the heat for. He's such a douchebag. He's just such a douche. And the fact that he plans raves is such a funny (laughs) part of his character. Yeah, I think that there's probably a like 10% more comedy version of this movie you could do where that like douchebag character is blown out even more. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I love it. I mean, I, I, you know, you, you totally understand why this like made Steven Dorff a kind of it actor for a hot second that. I guess didn't really pay off, although I guess there's been some like good Steven Dorff performances recently. Yeah, old old Henry. Oh yeah. I saw old Henry. He is good in that. It's yeah. a similar character. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I like that movie a lot. But yeah, he, he he just does such a great job here. And yeah, their last fight is is totally amazing. Absolutely. We have in Boucher Wright, who does play Dr. Karen Jansen. I really like this character, not only because, of course, in Boucher is very beautiful and talented. She's a great actor. But also Karen is very capable. She yeah. contributes not just to the plot, but also like Blade's capabilities in major, major ways. She develops the like explosive attempt at the cure. Right. That um is a is a huge deal for him. And and I also yeah. love that she's just this tribute to Pam Greer, they were saying. Yeah, no, she's she's awesome. A really a really good character and definitely like that is a type of character that I feel like we see more now, but I think at the time was probably kind of a you know kind of a punch in the face i mean yeah she is great and yeah definitely like you you can tell where the like you know pam greer inspiration came in yeah for sure and so they have the script and they have some casting and now they're looking for a director and the producer of the movie peter frankfurt said i knew david fincher from way before we were friends he was finishing seven at the time at new line and he read the script and he was like what's going on with blade this is pretty good i just have some different ideas about it so i said David, look, I would love to have you direct this movie. You're my favorite director, but I know that you're not going to do it. And we, were <laughs> <laughs> and we were going into a meeting with Mike DeLuca, and he couldn't help himself. He started talking about the first act and what he wanted to do, and I could see everybody was just completely mesmerized. And I knew right then we were going to waste a year, which was basically exactly what happened. Oh, no. <laughs> so wait, there was almost a David Fincher blade? Yes. That. I mean, I guess to hear to hear them say it, there wasn't there wasn't ever almost one. He was never going to do it. But yeah, I mean, that's kind of wild. I I mean, I do think this. You know, I I wouldn't change anything about this movie. But it is kind of interesting to think about a David Fincher Blade movie might be kind of cool. Definitely, and I think that it's a a good sort of uh, I don't want to call him like an alternative, but I think that. Stephen Norrington, who is the director, has a lot of influence from David Fincher. They have some similar yeah. vibes. 
And uh, he said that I'd seen this movie Death Machine that this British guy, Stephen Norrington, had directed. And it's a little bit incoherent, but it's just nonstop balls to the wall. The action is insane, and he made it for nothing. So I reached out and brought him in, and he was absolutely incredible in the room. And I think Norrington is really really solid with this movie. Uh, he yeah. was unfortunately put in director jail after his fourth movie, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Right. Which uh, was a huge, huge flop. But I did watch Death Machine. I thought it was a lot of fun. He does a great job with this. And the producer not only gave him his props as sort of uh, an auteur force behind this, but also cinematographer Theo Van de Sand said, Norrington was always the motor. He had so much knowledge. He had worked with Fincher on some films and was a super visual effects maverick. He had some social qualities, yes, but I like to be challenged, and he's such a genius person. He designed almost everything by himself, storyboards, everything. And this touches on what I think is really important, is that this does let itself feel like a comic book at points where it doesn't yeah. feel like it's ashamed of its source material. And right. there are there are times where they'll just set up a frame to look like a comic book frame, like a panel in a comic book. And having those storyboards, I think, has has got to be so crucial to pulling that off, to knowing what you want it to look like going in. And I just don't know if that happens every time because of the capabilities that they have to build things in post that uh that the forethought going into the choreography and everything and in the way that it interacts with the environment uh, is not always there yeah no it's, there is some like bad 90s cgi in this movie particularly the scene where they're fighting in the subway tunnel right there's like right. these cgi trains that look like they're from a playstation one game oh they didn't do that for real no yeah actually that was cgi you'll be oh. shocked to know oh it's a really fun sequence. Uh, yeah, they like, you know, grind vampire faces along the side of the train. There's a bunch of, you know, a bunch of vampires get squashed by the train. It's a very fun sequence. But yeah, definitely has like that bad 90s CGI. That is kind of fun, actually, yeah. at this point. But yeah, but I know it is so like, it is such a such a cool movie to look at. And yeah, you're totally right about there, there seeming like there's splash panels. And yeah, just these little moments that look like they're straight out of a comic book in a way that's like reverential not like i feel like there were some comic book movies that are like haha we're doing panels right. <laughs> and stuff like that in a way that was just like the panels aren't what we like about comic books <laughs> like we like that they're hey speak for yourself jordan that's what okay, i'm signing hey, up for <laughs> okay maybe there's just panel heads out there who <laughs> just like various sizes of box oh my god a three by four in this issue cool whoa <laughs> but yeah it is yeah again just so like forward thinking and so yeah. like ahead of its time and yeah it's such a bummer that the that the dude doesn't direct anymore i mean that league of extraordinary gentlemen movie is pretty bad but like anyway yeah it's just a bummer that a guy yeah. who but bleed is so who, good <laughs> No, it is. I haven't. <laughs> yeah. seen, what's Death Machine like? Maybe I should watch Death Machine. Death Machine is like if you took the budget of the movie Hardware. Uh-huh. Maybe I don't know Hardware either. Oh, it's it's like a, a Richard Stanley uh, movie from Australia. It's okay. It's, so it's like it's like a like a, I think it was like three million dollars. So very low uh-huh. budget. And it's like if you said, I really wish that I had enough time to watch RoboCop and Aliens at the same time, <laughs> but I don't have that much time. So instead, I'm going to just combine them into one movie. Right. And and so, it, you know, there's a, a lot of fun. It's kind of silly. Brad Dourif is in it. He's always great. He's the main villain. And there's some good, yeah, some good, like, technical, uh, like, practical robot stuff happening. 
I think it's worth a watch, especially uh, that makes it two good movies for Stephen Norrington to his one flop. And uh, bring him back is all I'm saying. (laughs) It's funny. I did look him up on IMDb, and he looks exactly like the kind of person who would direct this movie. He has a long white goatee and those, like, giant earrings, those giant, like, thick earrings. He just just looks like a guy from a 90s rave. And I'm like, (laughs) yes, of course this is the guy who directed Blade. Oh, yeah. He, He knew what he was doing. They did have to do some reshoots for the ending because they couldn't get the look quite right. But the crew was like, oh, we were stoked that they even believed in the movie enough to pay for those reshoots. Yeah. Uh, so it wound up costing around $50 million all in. And it did become a major success. It made $131 million at the box office, thanks in part to some wild promotion. Snipes went on Letterman as Blade. Wow. Oh, my God. I got to <laughs> find that YouTube video. <laughs> they also hosted crazy vampire parties in 15 cities. And I I am so happy for it and its legacy that even with the glut of superhero movies that have come out since Blade, uh, it still has its its fan base. It's never really faded into the background. Uh, and of course, now today, it's being declared the best horror movie of all time. That's right. I stand by it. Yeah, I know. The trilogy is so fun. I mean, that I remember that third one being kind of bonkers in a you know in a less than effective way. But I do you know. I do enjoy them all. And yeah, the fact that they're like, they always kind of seem to be hanging out on streaming or on cable is, is a great, like, yeah, just a great, like, uh, you know, it's, it, you can tell, you can tell that they're beloved. And uh, yeah, the fact that they're always kind of trying to remake it and not really getting there is also a sign that, Definitely. you know, this is still a franchise people love. Definitely. So let's get into the actual movie. It's a wash in steel blue, which I think makes the Reds really pop as we rush Mm -hmm. into a hospital following a pregnant woman named Vanessa Brooks hemorrhaging on a gurney. They don't think she's going to make it as they take her crying blood-soaked baby. Boom! Wesley Snipes credit. Big block red letter. Love it. What a great, great intro. Very stylish. This time lapse of L.A., it just totally cements like the the time that you're in as we get this now like uh uh they don't they don't even <laughs> i guess technically now it's 2023 that this rave is taking place in because right. they don't ground it in the 90s but but it is funny i i do like the time capsule feeling of it me too yeah totally and yeah the uh yeah i mean again it would it would be it would be great to see a like 70s late 60s blade at some point i don't know if it's like his ancestor or they just like retcon him into a different era but yeah definitely like that seems like it fits yeah definitely so tracy lords takes her very 90s boy toy and his heat seeker to the meat factory fun fact about that character he he refers to his penis as the heat seeker oh that was what he was talking about i think he was i think i think i think think okay okay. don't quote me on that i'm not an expert (laughs) when you i watched this on like i did the amazon rental and when you pause the amazon rental you know it brings up kind of the imdb page for the movie and you get to see you know the name of everybody on screen Mm -hmm. this character's name is heat seeking dennis wow that's pretty great i like that a lot There's a really great moment, too, where she hands this character, who is like the audience proxy, basically, her jacket, and he just like looks at it and then throws it away because he doesn't know what to do with it as they walk (laughs) in. And we're also introduced to Donald Logue's character, Quinn, 
literally five minutes in uh, by showing him making out with someone and getting a blowjob at the same time, something the cowards at Marvel would never do today. <laughs> right. Yeah, it is It is kind of fun to see all the hard R stuff in this. Yeah, I know I guess we got the Deadpool movies that are like kind of, they kind of play around with some of this stuff. But yeah, it is It is a way harder R than, than these movies usually are. Yeah. Uh, and Donald Logue, I mean, it's an al- it's already an incredible movie, but he's such a bright spot for me. I love yeah, Donald this guy Logue. rules. <laughs> yeah, he's he's great. And the like, and again, I think that there's a there's a there's a a more comedy intensive version of this movie where this character constantly getting chopped up is <laughs> is like played for more laughs. But already, I do love it that this character just survives everything and just gets more and more mutilated as the movie goes. It, yeah. it, it's really a blast. It really is. Uh, he talked about getting cast because he had like long hair and went in for his audition with it braided like Snoop Dogg and he had a cowboy hat on and he walked into this waiting room full of guys in polo shirts and dockers and Norrington <laughs> was like, that's the guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, that makes total sense. I know. He's such a fun scumbag. Yeah. And the part of Quinn was actually kind of negligible at first, but he and Dorf kind of found a rhythm and became actual buddies. He said that they still hang out together. Oh, cool. Uh, okay. And Love so that. they just kept pushing it farther. Go farther. Go be funny. Uh, and and yeah, I mean, there definitely is a t- like a, a, a even hot, a even more heightened version of this character, but he is a great like comic relief moment pretty frequently in this movie keeps things from getting too grim, too serious. So we get this uh, bloodbath scene, which is incredible. Yeah. Starts Iconic. off with the Iconic. what's wrong, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, this is, this is such a fun scene. I mean, yeah, I think anybody around our age, you could, you could mention the blade blood rave and everyone knows what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just like such a blast, such a like fun, you know, of course, vampires do this moment. Yeah. Um, I love it. It's a blast. And, right. you know, the fact that the movie stays great after this awesome opening is is a testament to how good it is. Because, Seriously. Yeah, it sets it, the bar so high. Yeah, I know. How do you how do you top it? And they manage somehow. Snipes said the extras, they had to actually sit around in the blood, especially if you were one of those ones who rushed and raised your hand like, I'll be in front. Take me. And then he laughed and said, it was a tough gig. They couldn't change during lunch. They couldn't wipe it off for continuity. I applaud them. I applaud them. Thank y'all so much. I mean, we thanked (laughs) them at the time, but I'm doing it again. (laughs) Yeah, I would would love to hear a a firsthand account of what it was like to be one of the Blood Rave extras. Oh, man. I can't even imagine. Goyer, he, he also talked about it, but he said that not only was it sticky, but it also smelled terrible. Uh, the heat, the corn syrup, just really, I can imagine it being terrible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Worth it. it pays though. off. Worth pays it. off. Exactly. Exactly. It is an incredible damn intro. It, the fight sequence, the smiles, the thrown glaive. So funny when Donald Logue was talking about this scene and he was like, I didn't want to deal with what the extras did. So I was kind of off to the side for all of the blood <laughs> stuff. <laughs> But Blade wins, of course. He stakes Quinn to the wall, then burns him, but spares the human we came in with as the cops arrive. And this is, you know, I don't think that he, like, talks at all in this opening sequence, but you get so much characterization from the smile when things kick off to his sparing this human. Like, all all of the important things about Blade you get without yeah. him even talking. 
I think he says at some point he says to Donald Logue, like, I'm tired of chopping you up. I'm going to burn you this time and <laughs> yeah. throw some sort of like firebomb at him. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the fact that you you see that like this guy enjoys this, like he likes killing vampires. He's not Batman who was like tortured through all of his crime fighting. He's like, he's into it. Yeah, I think that's such a fun part of his character. We follow the corpse of Quinn to the hospital which starts like gesturing at some cliche romance subplot, which I really like as a fake out to get you to let down your guard. You're like, all right, settle in. They got to set this nonsense up. And then chomp Quinn corpse bites that guy's dang neck out (laughs) in the commentary. Peter Frankfurt was telling this story about how Donald Logue broke his jaw in a motorcycle accident years before. And during the fight in the hospital, he fell in a way that dislocated it again. And so he's screaming and everyone thinks it's part of the movie for a second. And then they're like, oh, he's serious. We have to rush this nude man under third degree burn makeup to the emergency room at 830 in the morning on a Monday. (laughs) Doesn't sound like a fun experience, but he said that they basically gave him enough morphine to slap his jaw back into place and send him back to set. (laughs) I had no idea that happened. Wild. So Quinn runs out screaming. He bites Dr. Karen as he flees. But Blade arrives to finish him off. And one of my very favorite jokes in this whole movie is right at the beginning because it is incredible for a charred vampire corpse to call Blade a freak. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I love I love that the the charred corpse talks. It's so funny that he's still alive. It rules. It's also very funny when Blade literally chucks Karen out the window across the street and you watch her like bounce off of the other building. Kind of reminds me of later Deacon Frost like throws a kid has like a kid he has hostage and just like <laughs> fastball pitches her into the middle of the street. It's so brutal. <laughs> Iconic. We do get a great intro to Whistler as well. Like we said, he's jamming to Credence and then he injects Ugh. Karen with straight up garlic to fight her impending vampirism, which I find very funny. Yeah, there's a lot of this movie has a lot of people getting a painful injection. Mm. I think Blade is always injecting himself with various serums. Yep. Yeah, so there's a lot of, like, someone getting a, an injection and just, like, you seeing it, how how much it hurts them. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty wild, and, you know, she's great, but nobody gets a painful injection like Wesley. He That's really true. sells it. Very true. We also get to meet the Vampire Council, Udo Kier, incredible as always here mm-hmm. as Dragonetti, which is a very cool vampire name. He said that he was cast because of his roles in Flesh for Frankenstein and Blood for Dracula, both of which I like quite a bit. So the, the council is pissed about Blade. They're also pissed about Deacon Frost, who's the owner of the nightclub, who's breaking the treaty that the vampires have with human politicians about gathering in numbers. And, you know, you pitched a Blade prequel. I'm thinking that I want a Zodiac-style investigative journalism movie about uncovering this treaty. Dang, yeah. Love that. Love that. Yeah, they have those comics, Gotham PD, that's like the -the on-the-ground cops in Gotham while all the Batman shit is going on. I would love to see that for this. I would love to see, uh, you know, just the hardened detectives that have to clean up vampire crimes. (laughs) Yeah, and also in the background, Blade is there and fighting. And then, yeah, you see Blade every (laughs) every couple minutes kicking ass. They wave to him. There goes Blade. There's Blade. Oh, what a rascal. Mm -hmm. But Deacon is a half-blood which means that he is a turned human instead of being born a vampire, and they make no bones about rubbing this in his face, but he wants to emerge from the metaphorical shadows and rule the humans. Yeah, I do like all the Vampire Council stuff in this. Sometimes that, like, let's see what the villains are doing stuff is kind of a snooze, but I really like it here. Yeah, Udo Kier's great. 
And uh, yeah, I don't know. I like it. I'm into it. And yeah, it, it, this is a, a good example of them like building their own bits of vampire lore. I think it really works. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Blade, meanwhile, is fencing the watches and stuff that he got from the vampires. Uh, you got to pay for the anti-vampire serum somehow. And like he says, they're not exactly the March of Dimes. <laughs> Karen wakes up, though. She scares herself with Blade's sword's security system of tiny swords in the handle that pop out, which makes me laugh every time. <laughs> Yeah, love it. And I love how often that comes back. It kind of yeah. like saves the day in the end. Yeah, this like trick sword is is so cool. The sword had a long history in the original script. It had killed Lamagra a thousand years ago and was handed down between vampire hunters. But I think it just works as, as a cool sword here. Oh, yeah, totally. She also stumbles on Blade getting anti-vampire serumed and uh, they're properly introduced after chasing her down. Blade's quiet drop in the background while she's talking to Whistler is very funny and also good. Like it, it, it like you said, it's cheesy, but in a way where I'm like, yes, good. You need a little, uh, some yeah. amount of cheese in this. Yeah, they know they're doing it. It feels intentional and uh, in, in a way that like makes it really fun. Yeah. He also tells her to make herself scarce and to kill herself if she finds herself turning, which is pretty intense. Right. <laughs> Short diversion to Deacon Frost translating the ancient vampire texts. You know there's nothing good on those. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I love later in the movie we see all the, like, whatever their version of the Dead Sea Scrolls is, like, hanging in that museum. It's so cool. That is such a cool, like, a unique bit of vampire lore and just, like, great world-building stuff. Yeah, I love it. Love anything with vampire texts. And and you get some fun computer-enhanced graphics going on. (laughs) Yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's some great tension in the elevator where it seems like the vampires are following uh, Karen. Then the person who actually intrudes is a crooked cop, Renfield. But Blade used her as bait, and so he arrives and absolutely demolishes her apartment, which really makes me laugh when she's like, is this really necessary? (laughs) That is a very funny moment. (laughs) And he just beats the shit out of this cop in the middle of a street. It's another day. I'm walking here. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) People are kind of blasé toward Blade. You kind of do wonder how, like, out in the open vampire shit is in this world. Like, does your average person on the street kind of know that there's vampires? I don't. No, it is unclear. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and like the cops kind of seem to know that there's vampires or, you know, that they, anyway, they're like kind of blasé about cleaning up the blood rave. So yeah. so you, you do wonder, that is maybe a little part of the world that I have questions about. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting because, they, I mean, they clearly have a treaty with politicians. So how far right. down does that trickle? Yeah, does the firefighter who has to put out <laughs> Donald Logue know <laughs> that? He's a vampire, you know, because they there's a fire. Yeah, there's a fireman who they're like, put him out. And in a very like in a way that does suggest that this is just another Wednesday. But also some of the other stuff is unclear. So who knows? Who knows? Yeah. The cop does escape. There's a great transition to night as they stake out the car, uh, then follow him on his return. And they drop the amazing line taken right from the comics. There are worse things out tonight than vampires. Like what? Like me. Yeah. (laughs) Love it. Love it. The doorman asks for their invitation, and here's part of what I love so much about Blade. His response to every obstacle is to just go through it. He never tries to outthink them. He just Mm -hmm. kicks their ass, and it's refreshing. Yeah. All confidence. (laughs) Yeah. Not a a great tactician, Blade. (laughs) I guess that's what that's what Whistler's for, I guess. <laughs> exactly. And Whistler is also kind of just interested in fucking shit up. So Yeah, I guess I guess when we see Whistler fight, he just kicks down the door and sprays with a machine gun. So, <laughs> so not, that's uh, your tactician. Not big on the element of surprise, these guys. 
it is a fun song. I like this like environment that he goes into. Every single person inside is wearing sunglasses, which is really creepy. And it was Wesley's idea to have the safe house entrance in the freezer, which is uh, which is a lot oh, of yeah. fun. You give Frost a message from me. It's open season on all suckheads. Another suck classic heads. line. <laughs> Love suckheads. And speaking of Deacon, the translation of the ancient text is complete. We got to look at his place. The rubber ducks in the pool is a nice touch for old old Deaky there. That is fun. Blade and Karen torture the vampire archivist Pearl for some answers. The smoke from Pearl, like cooking in the UV light, really makes the scene look good. It's yeah. <laughs> And that's a fun little piece of practical. This like vampire that's under all this like prosthetic makeup, and yeah, yeah they they roast him with the UV light. He, tons of fun. Love love this guy's performance too. <laughs> love his like weird voice, and yeah. he like this this actor like plays the comedy a little bit higher than than other people in the movie. It it, it it's a it's a fun moment. It's a fun like comedy performance in a movie where the comedy is a little subtler. Mm. I like it. I like it's a little spice and it works here and yeah. there's not too much of it. I totally agree. It's it's a, a quick scene. They had to literally build the clay original on a flatbed trailer in order to take something of that size down the street to the fiberglass molding shop. Oh, wild. Yeah. And it, it so it took a puppeteer for the rod controlled legs, two small actors manipulating each arm, technicians to control an air bladder that simulated breathing, and then Eric Edwards, the actor, buried under foam latex and providing the voice. So a team effort there. Oh my gosh, yeah. That's so cool. Pearl says, Lamagra the Blood God is coming, which is a great name, Lamagra the Blood God. Love it. (laughs) They're ambushed by Quinn and company, and you talked about loving to see these Dead Sea Scroll-style vampire texts here. This lady has no respect for these ancient texts, just kicks Blade <laughs> right through it. Just kicking him over. <laughs> yeah. I also love the guy who's like, I got his pig sticker, and then his hand just explodes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, every trick sword moment in this rules. Yeah, uh, as, so as part of my research for this, I was reading uh, an old Cinefantastique magazine, and one of the production stills in there was just a shot of his hand exploding, which I was like, they know Neat. what gets people. Yeah. <laughs> And then Whistler enters uh, enters as well. Catch you fuckers at a bad time. It opens fire on him. Hell yeah. It's great stuff. This is where we get the subway sequence. Yes, he does rub Quinn's head against the subway train, which is a lot of fun. He also cuts off his hand again, which is very funny. And then they escape by catching the back of the moving train and outpace them, which fucks up Blade's shoulder, which allows then Karen to pay him back for the dislocated shoulder that he fixed at the beginning. Yeah, a lot of lot of fun, lot of fun callbacks. See, yeah. <laughs> they quickly recap both Blade and Whistler's backstory. His family was killed by vampires, and not quickly. I really love the moving camera in this scene because it's kind of kinetic and dynamic for what could be a pretty boring exposition dump. But they keep it moving. They keep it short enough that it's not too bad. It, it really works for me. I think that they know exactly the right amount of talking about stuff versus showing things to to have that right the the exact balance yeah again i I think this movie is is it's so great with its exposition like a lot of it comes naturally there are some exposition dumps there's a lot of like you know blade explaining to karen that you know the vampires own all the real estate or whatever (laughs) but yeah i don't know i think it's i think it's a pretty tidy little movie it feels a little long kind of toward the end i think 
once they're like draining Blade's blood in the coffin, it's like, eh, isn't this movie kind of over? But <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready it, for this to start wrapping up. <laughs> but yeah, but as, as far as the like, as far as the like setting up of the world and like introducing us to all the characters, it it, it does such a good job. They should they should teach this movie in screenwriting schools if they don't already. I don't know. Yeah. I've never been to a screenwriting school. <laughs> over on Team Vamp, however, the coup has begun. This sunrise sunscreen torture is great as Deacon oh, yeah. kills Dragon Eddie. Oh yeah. It's it's just two great performances there because Udo is is very uh reserved and trying to take it with a brave face and and Dorf is getting more and more worked up as as it gets closer and uh, Dragon Eddie melts, then bursts into flames, then Love explodes. It. Love the trifecta. It. <laughs> Yeah, up until now, when a vampire dies, it's kind of just like when a when a Buffy villain dies, they just kind of like crumble to dust and there's a little bit it's a little like sparkier. There's a little f- flame or something with right. it. But it's 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 like that effect that you're familiar with. But when this guy dies, like it does seem like it goes to a claymation model of him melting and his like throat falling out. It is, it is, it's wild. It's like way gorier than anything that's been in the movie till that point, And it rules. Yeah. The microscope exploding in Blade's face is also very funny as Karen is searching for a cure, but instead does create another weapon for his arsenal. As we get that good news though, so too do we get some bad because uh, Whistler is hacking up a damn lung in the back he has cancer, which is sad for Blade. And also, more bad news, Karen didn't catch the vampirism in time, which for me is genuinely kind of a surprising twist. Like, you, you kind of assume that they just have that as a beginning thing to write off and then ignore, like, oh, yeah, the garlic cured her or whatever. But for them to be like, oh, no, that actually didn't work. And she's still, like, all jacked up and turning into a vampire. Right. For, like, it's surprising for me that it comes back into play. Totally. This is when we get to the park scene, which is very cool. It's shot kind of like a Michael Mann movie here a little bit. It was Dorf's first day on set. David Fincher was on set as well, because like we said, he was once attached. He is buddies with Norrington. So everything was delayed. Dorf had been kept waiting around. He's already testy. The dialogue is stale to him from practicing. And so he wanted to just keep going. But Wesley wanted to look at the playback. And so they had a bit of an argument there. And Wesley was like, oh, I just lent the scene the edge and anger to make it feel real because he hadn't found Frost yet. Like, Wesley totally was, like, totally cool about it, which I was like, uh, big respect to Wesley for not taking it personally that they got into this argument and being like, yeah, he just used it for the performance and that's what an actor does. I was like, hell yeah, Wesley. Deacon wants what Blade has, which is to be, like, a daywalker. And I really like that Deacon is, like, a fanboy almost for Blade. Yeah. Where he's yeah, like, totally. I know everything about you, man. I know. And it really fits in this world where Blade is already the coolest guy in history. Like, <laughs> you know, it's like everyone knows Blade. Surely yeah. you know Blade. And it is definitely funny considering how obscure the character is or mm-hmm. like was before this movie. Right. Yeah. Just this <laughs> this feeling like, well, yes, Blade, of course, <laughs> the most famous guy in the world. It's it. Yeah, it's a ton of fun. Yeah, and then Blade says, you're nothing to me but another dead vampire, which, Mm -hmm. great retort, and pisses Deacon off, so he hurls this child through the booth into the path of the bus, as we mentioned. Just, I mean, it's a power move. It's a power move. Yeah, and definitely you would never see that in a Marvel movie these (laughs) days. You would never see that in an MCU, just a villain (laughs) flinging a child into traffic through, like, a glass, like, some sort of glass, like, food cart or something. It is... 
insane. I would like to see that in more Marvel movies. Yeah, start chucking kids around. <laughs> Cowards. <laughs> Whistler and Karen are attacked not just by Quinn and the gang, but Frost himself. And Blade finds the grisly aftermath. This is something that I find pretty interesting because I don't love that it turns into another, like, chosen one thing. Sure. But it at least subverts it in an interesting way where it's like you're chosen for a negative prophecy. So just don't go after him because he needs your blood and we'll be fine. But Blade can't resist. Yeah, yeah, I, I know. And I think we do have some familiar story beats in here. There is enough, there is plenty of original new stuff. But yeah, yeah. I, I, I think this is this is an instance where it's like, we, we have seen this before. The death of Whistler is good, although it's switched from Blade shooting him to, to Whistler doing it himself, although there's no hesitation from him, which is uh, very, very stoic and impressive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now in pursuit of Karen, Blade storms in on his motorcycle and uses the energetic reaction of the new weapons to explode some guys. This, You know, it was funny that you mentioned Big Trouble in Little China earlier, because I kind of feel like the way that these guys explode and die feels like an homage to Big Trouble in Little China to me. There's a similar kind of, like, mystical stuff happening right yeah. under our noses vibe. So the way that it shoot, like it, it looks like the guy exploding in Big Trouble... I don't know. Maybe it's on purpose. Maybe it's yeah, a coincidence. I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be surprised. That's. Yeah. I mean, that's such a like huge movie. And yeah. uh, I mean, I guess wasn't at the time was kind of a bomb. But as far as like you know, film fans go, like yeah, so many people worship that movie. Would not be surprised. And it like does borrow pretty liberally for its tone. Sure. So. Sure. I do think the mom reunion subplot is a little funny, especially when she's like Eric. Like she recognizes him from the right. birth. Uh huh. <laughs> Right. It is, of course, a trap, though. Deacon fucking with Quinn and pretending like he's going to chop off his arm. Fantastic. Another great gag about that. And they taunt Blade about their plan, reuniting Karen with Curtis, the guy from the beginning who's a friggin' zombie now. That's That was fun, where they're just like, oh, here's this guy from the from the right. fake-out romance plot who's a zombie. Gonna, he, can be, he could be the, the threat here. Why not? She whoops his butt. She escapes. Meanwhile, they're putting Blade in basically an Iron Maiden for the ceremony. I really like there's I mean, we talked about the industrial and and techno that's been going on in the score. But there's a really great moment in the score here where there's like this fun, like church reverential music happening as he's put like doing the ceremony where it's like, oh, it's an interesting shift where they like treat this very seriously. I kind of liked it. Yeah, it, it's neat, and I, I do like the religious stuff, and I do like that that like the vampires in their own way are like religious fanatics. Yeah. Um, it's yeah, it's a cool twist. The ceremony does begin to Quinn's delight, who says, "I'm going to be naughty. I'm going to be a naughty vampire guy." <laughs> <laughs> Karen frees Blade, and to heal him, lets him drink, and he almost goes too far, but does resist with a delightful slow motion roar which is great. And then he fights his mom while the ceremony continues and says, I must release you. Tragic for him that he's been searching for, for the, the vampire that bit his mom all along. And then for him to be the one who actually has to put her out of her misery here, you know, it's, it's intense. And, and it's nice that it's not lingered on too much where it becomes yeah. melodramatic, but it's just like, Oh wow, this has got to be like an impactful moment for him. Totally. And the emotional beats work. And it is like uh, totally a testament to what a what a weird tightrope this movie is to where it does, you know, it does want to be all these things does want to be like 
action and funny and creepy and campy, but also, you know, it wants to play those emotional beats pretty seriously. And I think for the most part, it does. Like, this is a good scene. I think Whistler committing suicide is a good scene. Just mm. walk away. Just walk away. That's a great little moment. Yeah, I don't know. It's it 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 is wild how this works. It shouldn't. This 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 these bits of the movie should not work, but I, I think they kind of do. Yeah. One thing. So we talked about how some of the CGI is classic '90s CGI. It's mm-hmm. not perfect, but the ideas behind them is frequently very good. Yeah. And and so in this upcoming moment here, where the ceremony is happening, the lightning is like destroying these vampires and like showing their skeletons in them and then for the like souls to climb out of their bodies is so awesome mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah like you're people who are like oh the ending looks crappy i'm like first of all i don't even think it looks that crappy but then on top of that like if you're letting the way that that looks get in the way of the intent of the scene like you're only doing yourself a disservice i feel like yeah, I, I know. It got me kind of thinking about, like, would there be any interest in, like, remasters of these movies where they work out the CGI a little bit better, or just give it a little bit more of a modern sheen? I do think that cheesy 90s CGI is kind of fun now. I rewatched The Relic recently. That has a pretty goofy CGI monster in it. And, and I think it can be fun. But, yeah, I don't know. Part of me does want to see like how this stuff would look with more modern effects because yeah i think like you said that like the ideas are all really cool and it's just the fact that the tech wasn't quite there the movie had to be kind of low budget so like yeah like that train scene is full of really cool action ideas but just like looks pretty wonky uh yeah and this is a good example too of like all of this is cool as shit it just happens to look like a playstation one game at the moment and yeah if they did this now it would it would probably look a lot better and cooler it does also transform deacon into lamagra but blade arrives he immediately dispatches quinn for the last time in this movie which is very funny he snags his glasses back out of midair which is again blade gets so many incredible entrances in this yeah. movie. <laughs> i know does quinn it's Whistler comes back. Whistler's back in the next one. Right. And is, does Quinn ever come back in these? I don't remember for sure. If they didn't, they're fools. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I know. Just keep that going through the trilogy. Just Blade chopping off this guy's limbs, <laughs> fucking him up in different ways. That, yeah. that, that would be a ton of fun. But Blade fights his way to Frost. He mentioned earlier that this hunt was his way of seeking peace. And this does play with, like, a Buddhist saying that they adapted about the path to reaching enlightenment being uh, that you must kill your father, kill your mother, and kill Buddha, which meant that trusting the divine instead of direction from outside, because the Buddha meant teacher there. And so here, Blade's literal mother and his teacher, Whistler, have died, and so all that's left for him to achieve peace is his vampire daddy, the one who bit his mom all those years ago, Deacon Frost. It is kind of interesting that there is like a Zen underlaying to this. I think it does work with his martial arts in a way that like feels natural for Blade as a character to be like, I'm I'm looking for peace. Right. Again, just it, it builds a level of cohesion that I think is, is really beneficial to the movie. Yeah, it's nice. And I don't know enough about like samurai movies and martial arts movies to like identify all the references but yeah I, I, it does seem to me like this movie like 
is indebted to all of those. And yes, Blade is what is Blade but a wandering Ronin with no master, you know? So true. Uh, so, true. so yeah, I would love, love, love to see some sort of like, you know, YouTube explainer for the martial arts and samurai references in Blade. I bet it's fascinating. For sure. The fight is fun. Deacon has an instant regeneration, basically, and gets the upper hand. Uh, but Blade get, manages to get a hold of the explosive serum and launches them all into Deacon before the most iconic line of all time. Boy, let's all let's say it together. Okay, okay. okay. Some, Some motherfuckers, motherfuckers are always trying, trying to, to ice skate uphill. uphill. Makes no sense. It's I, beautiful. It's beautiful. I absolutely <laughs> remember seeing it in theaters and the theater erupting into laughter. It's, it's beautiful. And it's so funny that, like, that happens before an insane balloon explosion of the main bad guy that yeah. nobody remembers because you, all right. you can think about is this crazy line right before. I know. I think, I think you can memory hold this movie into ending as soon as he says that. Like, <laughs> just cutting to the credits as soon as you hear some motherfuckers always trying to ice skate uphill. Wow, but yeah, is. there is a lot of, like, cool stuff <laughs> around it and after it. Yes, Blade roundhouse kicking the last vial into his forehead. His cool kind of, like, what looks kind of like claymation explosion. Uh, you got that great little... Post, uh, you know, post prologue, epilogue, epilogue. There you go. A good <laughs> epilogue scene in Russia. Am I catching you at a bad time, comrade? Oh. Great little line. But yeah, but I mean, like, I, I think in people's minds, this movie is the blood, the blood rave, and then some motherfuckers always trying to ice skate up hell. Mm. Honestly, great legacy. If you remember <laughs> two, th- but <laughs> there's great stuff in between. But like. I don't know. I feel like, again, everybody who is around our age, like, probably knows those two things. And it's smart that they're bookending the movie. That, like, yeah. it, le- it you start with a, with a high note and you leave on a high note. And it that's, that's how you build good opinion coming out of a movie. Mm-hmm. It was originally supposed to be a Whistler vampire that Blade had tracked down. That, like, Whistler hadn't actually killed himself. Oh, that's and, cool. And turned. And uh, they just couldn't make that work. And they were like, well, maybe he'll come back in the next one, which he did. So uh, so that wound up getting reshot. And then also the explosion with Frost was also reshot. In the original, his transformation to Lamagra sees him as kind of like a blood tornado. And they couldn't get it to look right. Even right. It looked worse than even what we got. And so there was an interesting speech from the from the cinematographer in the commentary where he talked about it being very frustrating for him to have to defend like the post-production digital work after right. setting them up for success and being like the cinematography, like the camera work looks great. And I just thought it was interesting. I mean, it does. It's maybe not fair to be like, oh, all the blame is on these guys. But yeah, I can see that feeling like i can see that stinging to be like oh people make fun of the way that the cgi looks and hold that against the movie that might otherwise be a a perfect legacy sure sure but yeah but i i i think you know like like well (laughs) i talked myself out of this analogy but uh, the thing i was gonna say is like you love to watch those old ray harryhausen movies Mm -hmm. i think those do like have their own cool little look but yeah i don't know sometimes like Watching an old movie, part of the fun is like, what were the special effects of the day, you know? Yeah, and and yeah, and I think that 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 if you can like look at it with that attitude, um, yeah. it is kind of fun to see some of these uh, some of these cheesy effects. 
Definitely. You know, like I said, I like the time capsule elements of it. And so for it to be like, this is what the 90s looked like. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Basically. They have a charm charm to it now looking back, even with even with the ugliness. It's like it's Mm -hmm. like an ugly it's like an ugly pet where you're like, yeah, Yeah. he's kind of ugly, but he's my kind of (laughs) ugly. Of course. I don't know if this is on your fact sheet or not. Something that I saw that caught my eye when I was just kind of going down the IMDb for this movie. Apparently, there is a scrapped scene where the director, who I guess has also acted, has a cameo as Dr. Michael Morbius. Wow. I did not know The other, uh, some would say the more popular Marvel vampire character. Wow. Incredible. Who knew? Yeah. Anyway, yeah, so they were kind of maybe even trying to build that shared universe from here. I don't know if there's any other like little Marvel Easter eggs in this that that I missed. But yeah, it's kind of interesting that they were maybe taking a shot at a shared universe. But even that early, very interesting. And of course, we all know Jared Leto was the perfect (laughs) Dr. Michael Morbius. They had to wait all these years so that Jared Leto could play him. And now, Jordan, we've reached the part of the episode where we sum up why this isn't just a good horror movie, but (laughs) is in fact the best horror movie ever made. And I'm going to let you start. Yeah, I think I can do it pretty succinctly. It's it's a horror movie that has it all. It has scares. It has gore. It has action. It has yucks. It has goofs. It has surprisingly effective dramatic moments. It has some of the greatest one-liners ever committed to film. Yeah, so don't don't be a motherfucker who's trying to ice skate uphill. (laughs) Make it easy on yourself. Watch this movie blade it's the best absolutely to me this is the best horror movie ever made because it is such a unique blend of the incredible blockbuster bombast of an action movie of the 90s while still genuinely carrying forward the legacy of incredible vampire icons through the years i would genuinely be like when people talk about vampire icons lugosi Christopher Lee, I would be very happy putting Wesley Snipes in that list. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No question. He He's so great. And for this to rely so heavily on his shoulders and for him to not just bear it, but to rise to meet it, to be so fucking cool. Mm-hmm. Like Wesley Snipes fucking kills it in this movie and as great as the supporting performances are because they are great and as fun as the cinematography and choreography is because they are a lot of fun this movie rides and dies with wesley snipes and for him to just absolutely knock it out of the park while balancing the several different plates of all of these genres that it is interested in subverting and homaging I mean, it's just incredible. It's an incredible performance, and it's an incredible feat. And that's why this is the best horror movie ever made. Jordan, I want to thank you so much for coming on this show. This was an absolute blast. Please tell the people where they can find you, anything that you want to plug, the the dates again for your your books coming out. Yeah, Pop's Chocolate Shop of Horrors, available at your local comic book store March 22nd. If you're in the Southern California area, I think we're going to be doing some signings around the book. So um, if you're listening to this before March 22nd, uh, keep an eye on social media for those. 
Youth Group is coming out next year sometime from First Second Books. I will be plugging that obsessively on social media, maybe again on this show if you'll have oh, me. There we go. At Jordan underscore Morris on Twitter, Jordan David Morris on Instagram. Keep an eye out for all that stuff. I'm really looking forward to Chocolate Shop of Horrors. I'm, I'm you know, like I said, I'm a big fan of Archie horror stuff already. And uh, I'm looking forward to Youth Group as well. That'll be a lot of fun. And people can check out Bubble, which is uh, already exists, and they can go purchase that right now. Yeah, there you go. While you're at your <laughs> local comic book shop, t- take, a, take a peek for our sci-fi comedy graphic novel, Bubble. If they don't have it in stock, they will order it for you. Tell them to. <laughs> as far as my plugs, I am no longer on Twitter, really, but that my username there, LittleHorrorPHL, applies pretty much everywhere, so Instagram, Letterboxd. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find other episodes with great artists from comic books uh, that you may know as well, like uh, Cody Ziegler has been on the show, who you might know from his work oh, on nice. Miles Morales and Spider-Punk. He's the best. He is great. I love that guy. Branson Reese has been on the show a couple times to, you know, I know him from Swan Boy. We talked about Q the Winged Serpent, which is another nice. fun, practical movie. Corinne Halbert was just on the show, a great Chicago artist to uh, talk about Possession, which that's a that's a fucked up movie. <laughs> so, <laughs> so all kinds of great stuff uh, and, and all kinds of people whose names you might know, whether you're a comics fan or a comedy fan. As And and yeah, that's pretty much it. Oh, I forgot to almost plug. Uh, I have a live show coming up. If you're in the Philadelphia area, come to Philomoca on May 4th for a live show where Paul Ritchie and I will be talking about Tetsuo the Iron Man. And not only are we going to be talking about it, but that movie is short enough that we have enough time to screen it first. <laughs> so so come check out Tetsuo and then a live episode right after it, May 4th at Philomoka here in Philadelphia. It'll be a lot of fun. And that is pretty much it. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye.